3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome, welcome to 3CR Thursday Breakfast on 8.55am. It is 7am, the start of our wonderful show, and I'm here with Priya in the studio. Hello! Oh, good morning, Inez. Uh, I just realized that this this pair of headphones doesn't work, so I was like, why can't I hear anything? But don't even worry about it, Inez. That's not you on the panel. This is the headphones that I'm using. Um, I have a question for you. Oh, goodness. Um, Great out- question. Okay, no. Out of all the Shreks, which one is your favorite? The Shreks. I do not remember watching much of them. Okay, but if you had to say what your favorite Shrek was, just off the cuff. I think two is a good number. Oh my goodness. Okay, so that is the wrong answer. I'm so sorry. Um, I had a conversation with my friend Jack, uh, who is a barista, yesterday, and we were talking about how Shrek 1 is obviously the best movie, but then there were two people, uh, one of them walked past while I was saying this, while I was ordering my coffee, and he said, no, Shrek 2 is the best, and I was like, that is something that someone born after 2000 would say. And then we asked Jack's co-worker, and she said, I think it's the one with Prince Charming, aka Shrek 2. So, my conclusion is, uh, which you have now disproved, is that everybody born before the year 2000 thinks Shrek 1 is the best Shrek, and everyone born after the year 2000 thinks Shrek 2 is the best Shrek. And now... On live air, I've been shown up as being wrong, so i just like to publicly own that uh, I don't know anything and I shouldn't be making wild claims anymore at 7 in the morning. That's okay. I accept your apology. That's totally fine. I don't know if I've even watched Shrek 2. I just like the number 2. I hate you so much. (laughs) Uh, Let's get into the show and do a quick rundown of what we're chatting about today. I have a very special uh, interview with Claddy, who is a jazz singer, DJ, producer, booker, events programmer, actress and icon in the Nam creative scene. She joined us earlier this week to chat about her latest role as Tanya in Mungwaza's theatre company's Bear the Musical and what it feels like to work in a production that truly honours creativity and cultural safety. We also spoke about the bear cast, bonding over Alicia Keys, racism in the music industry, creating your own safer spaces, and showing up consistently with community. Amazing. And then after that, we are going to hear from queer community organizer Tori to talk about tomorrow's event, Queer Joys for Everyone, which is being held at Warwee Park in Oakley to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community in the face of anti-queer and anti-trans threats to shut down public expressions of queer life. Now, this event is being held in the wake of several councils, most recently the city of Monash, deciding to cancel their Drag Queen Storytime event because of threats of violence from conservative campaigners and far-right groups and on the advice of Victoria Police. Uh, So we will share some information about how you can find out more and get involved when we talk to Tori. But this is definitely very much a live issue and we encourage people to show up if they can. And then uh, I would say our... uh, 
Our feature interview, maybe, for today, uh, it's a two-parter, is with Dr. Jordana Silverstein, who's a historian and senior research fellow at Peter McMullen Center on Statelessness at the Melbourne Law School. And Jordy's going to speak with us about her new book, Cruel Care, which is an eye-opening exploration of the construction and violent governance of child refugees in Australian law and policy. Cruel Care asks provocative questions about how policymakers are shaped by and in turn shape their histories, communities, and the nation. And it draws our attention to the importance of situating these concerns within ongoing settler colonialism in so-called Australia. Now, Geordie's someone who I've known for a while and really, really look up to in the way that she weaves together her academic work and her way of being in the world and showing up in the world in terms of you know, being present in social struggle. And so I'm really looking forward to this interview and uh, I hope you guys are as well. So that's uh, it's going to be a big one. Um, and that's why we've only got three on for today. But that's our show. It's going to be wonderful. So definitely stay tuned. Published or Not has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us every Thursday at 11.30 on 3CR. I've been working on my rear that's right. I'm going to change the ending. And now for the news headlines for Thursday the 18th of May. And listeners, please be advised the following mention of First Nation person who has died. Monday marked the close of the latest round of hearings by the Uruk Justice Commission. The commission is the first formal truth-telling process into the injustices experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. Between April 27th and May 15th, Uruk heard from a number of ministers, senior bureaucrats and the Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police, Shane Patton, about the administration of the child protection and criminal justice systems. Shane Patton delivered a statement admitting to systemic harms towards First Nations people through enforcement of racist policy by police, as well as their role in the forced removal of First Nations children from their families and police's role in the growing toll of deaths in custody. On Monday, Corrections Minister Enver Eridon confirmed the news of yet another death in custody in Victoria. The seven-year-old Torres Strait Islander man will not be named out of the respect of his family's wishes. Uruk Chair Eleanor Burke reminded Minister Erdogan that acknowledging trauma does not equate to meaningful change. The following day, Uruk Justice Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter stressed that as Minister of Corrective Services and Youth Justice, Mr Erdogan is responsible for policies that criminalise children as young as 12 years old. Commissioner Hunter states to the witness, quote, We are adults here, we're making decisions about these young children and we have got to remember their children and how we treat them affects them for the rest of their lives. In other news, the Maribyrnong City Council has declared a health emergency due to noise and air pollution from the high number of heavy trucks on local roads. Reported rates of hospitalization and illness in the area are said to significantly exceed the national average. 
illnesses amongst Maribyrnong residents have been linked to part- particulate matter blown into their homes day and night. And this particulate matter comes in the form of dust, dirt, soot and smoke, which can irritate the eyes, nose or throat. And this is a particular concern for people with chronic or pre-existing health conditions. Maribyrnong Council is calling for higher compliance with and surveillance of heavy vehicle curfews, as well as increased monitoring from government of health effects on residents in relation to truck movements. And finally, in news headlines, the financial consulting firm PwC has come under intense scrutiny due to a massive breach of confidentiality agreements with the Australian government. The consulting giant allegedly shared information on confidential policy with its clients' companies. The policies in question were designed by the Australian government in partnership with PwC to increase tax compliance. PwC allegedly shared this confidential information with their clients to avoid, uh, to aid in avoiding the preventative measures. The scandal is considered a worldwide concern, with many governments relying on PwC to advise on tax compliance policy making. PwC stands accused of an ongoing cover-up. In addition to the internal review, Green Senator Barbara Pocock is demanding a federal investigation into PwC's misuse of confidential information. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 18th of May, and you're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. And I also want to point out, um, given our headlines in earlier on, uh, you can call Lifeline on 131114, that's Lifeline on 131114. And particularly for mob-only support, you can call 13YARN on 13927. And I just wanted to add to that, um, this is something unrelated to the headlines, but uh, you know, listeners might be aware of the ongoing vitriolic targeting of uh, welfare recipients uh, in the media. And this is really blown up with the president of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, Jeremy Haywood, uh, being targeted by uh, 2GB host Ben Fordham. Um, and I just want to express our solidarity with Jeremy. I know this is an incredibly difficult situation uh, to uh, allegedly be uh, labeled as a doll bludger and um, to basically be plastered all over conservative media. These are massive attacks that totally, um, you know, not only fail to recognize, but actively exacerbate the mental health, you know, concerns that are preventing folks like Jeremy, who's been open about his own mental health struggles from accessing ongoing work. And as he's mentioned himself, um, the social security system and the dire rate of social security payments, which are still well below the poverty line, uh, really exacerbates things um, and makes it impossible for people who are struggling with mental health conditions to actually access ongoing support. Um, or treatment. So uh, yeah, our solidarity with Jeremy and with all folks that are on social security payments that are being, um, you know, demonized in in uh, conservative media, but also don't get much of a fair showing in, in regular media as well. So you know, it, it's absolutely not on to, uh, to engage in this kind of vitriolic targeting. And um, we just wanted to call it out. But you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. 
Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. And now we will hear from Claddy, who is a jazz singer, DJ, producer, booker, events programmer, actress, and icon, that was my addition, um, in the Naim creative scene. She joined us earlier this week to chat about her latest role as Tanya in Munguaza's theatre company's Bear the Musical, and what it feels like to work in a production that truly honours diversity and cultural safety. We also spoke about the bear cast bonding over Alicia Keys, racism in the music industry, creating your own safer spaces and showing up consistently with community. And here it is. Thanks so much for joining us here today on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, Claddy. How are you? No worries. Thank you so much for having me, Inez. Yeah, I'm feeling really good. I'm super excited um, for a production coming up, which we'll get into in a minute. But yeah, just um, enjoying a bit of Nam Sun whilst it's out. And yeah, how are you? I am good. I am so pumped to chat to you. I've been wanting to get you on the show for so long. Um, <laughs> could you tell our listeners maybe a little bit about who you are and how you've actually found the creative scene here in Nam? Yeah, of course. Um, my name is Claddy. Um real birth name is Claudette Justice and I am a jazz singer, a DJ, a producer, um, a booker, events programmer um, and also yeah actress um, again as of recently and yeah and just basically helping uplift the community here and yeah I mostly book um, Black, Pock, and Indigenous and queer community. Um, Yeah, because we deserve to take up a little space. Yes, 100%. And I think even seeing you perform as a DJ or being to like your curated event nights, listening to you sing, oh my gosh, you have like generally like such an electric and like captivating voice. Oh, Um, oh, no worries at all. Um, And I think the thread, as you mentioned, throughout all of these performances is about creating a really safe space for marginalized people and Mm -hmm. a way to like really express your authentic voice and I'm just wondering like when you're putting on a performance in any capacity how do you like really want the audience to feel when they come to your events? Yeah Um, basically I want the audience to feel safe I want them to be able to feel like they can embrace and be their most authentic self without judgment um and ultimately I want them to be able to um yeah feel safe enough to be able to let their guards down and have fun that's really wonderful I think there is like no shortage of fun (laughs) coming to any of your performances (laughs) um (laughs) and uh speaking of your newest adventure um, you've just been announced as Tanya as part of the cast of Bear, a pop opera, a limited show which is coming up in June at the Wyndham Cultural Centre. Mm-hmm. What made you like drawn to the piece? You know, what has it been like to audition and really work on the show? Um, quite a few things. So, you know, I, I haven't done a lot of acting lately. 
Um, and it's definitely something that I was super excited to get back into um, as I am an all-rounder performer. It's definitely something that I put a, on the back burner. So it was good to re-challenge myself to get into this kind of role. And um, Wenzala Theatre Company has been such a delight to work with, you know, like having um, Gideon, um, a Black director, it's been really um, important and incredible to not only, um, you know, have him directing our cast, um, it really just puts what the word diversity actually means into action with having um, us Black folk at the top in these positions. So, yeah, it's been really incredible. That is so wonderful to see and I think it's so clear in the the casting but also you can tell that you know even from like the behind the scenes shoots that it, everybody seems like they're really enjoying themselves they are also wondering with the specific role of Tanya what made you like really drawn to them and like have you learned anything about yourself while playing them yeah so it's a really interesting role um she's kind of like Tanya's kind of like the sassy um you know, like, let's say, like, Kelly Rowland, like, of the Beyonce, um, which is Ivy, played by Rue. And, yeah, it's just kind of really fun and kind of, like, you know, like, it's definitely bringing back a bit of a, it is high school, so senior year, but it's just kind of silly and, you know, we're not, like, super cruel or anything, but it is a really fun character to emulate being a bit like bossy and being the like you know the popular girl at school which I definitely was not so <laughs> it's kind of yeah it's it's so much fun to to bring that energy and um yeah there's there's one song called 911 which is hilarious which our um our teacher sister Chantel um kind of is running that song in particular and it's really hilarious we have a whole choreography um it's really sassy and yeah I can't wait for you all to see it yeah I'm so excited to check it out could you tell us more about what the show is or what like the premise Mm. is absolutely so um Beth the musical is based in a Catholic school and it touches base on sexuality um also kids being rebellious So, you know, like um, we're kind of like definitely naughty for for Catholic school. We don't listen to our our priest um, or the nun. We're kind of just like eye rolling and being like, oh, why are we here? Like, you know, God forgive us for our sins, but we're only human. So, yeah, it's definitely a fun one. And it is really important that, um, you know, like a religious production does touch on such things as sexuality and you know there's a lot of like queer elements so yeah yeah it sounds like it's been really like rewarding and intense in some ways and every emotion under the sun and you know speaking on from like diversity and creating safer spaces I'm also conscious of the fact that you have you know long called out racism in the creative scene and um you know, and it seems like it's never ending from like bookers to racist club owners, people invading your space, not paying marginalized folk and like so, so, so much more. Mm-hmm. What has it been like to actually work in a production where, you know, cultural safety and responsiveness is really like honored and respected? Yeah, great question. 
It's actually been revolutionary and it shouldn't be because it, it absolutely needs to be normalized. Um, you know, like I mentioned before, having black directors, um, it's been so incredible to feel seen and heard and safe. And, you know, our whole cast were also silly and playful with each other because we do have that sense of safety. Um, so it's really nice to be able to be our authentic selves and be able to really not worry about our basic human needs. So, yeah, I think that as artists, as performers um, who, you know, 80% cast is black and 20% pop, it's really amazing to be able to let down our guards and emulate the characters that we're working so hard um, to really get into for the show. We really get to focus on our artistry rather than our safety. And it's definitely something that is not normalized um, within the creative community because unfortunately we still don't have you know, the, the reason basically I became a booker in NAM is because there wasn't any Black women, Black femmes who were really curating that space. And, you know, I think I spoke a lot more about this pre-2020 um, when I didn't realise that I was really, like, allowed to have racial boundaries. And I still speak on these things, but more recognising what my capacity is at. And, you know, like, I'm really proud of myself and within community where we have normalized um, th things such as like, you know, uh, like black folk consistently on bills um, for events and things like this. And, you know, it's still like so much work to be done, but the fact is we have stepped into a more conscious kind of way. On the other end, it is really disappointing that with venues, there are still only Black, uh, sorry, excuse me, there are still only white bookers who are running the programs for the venue. So the fact is you can't use that word that diverse because you actually aren't diverse when you have still these white folks at the top who are controlling all the bookings and then you're just booking, um, you know, some black and pock artists. So, yeah, I'm really proud of myself and, and community for curating this change and normalizing what should have been normalized years ago a hundred percent and there's clearly so much work to be done but you've really been like such a pioneer but not just um not just in that way but just so collaborative and so incredible in making sure that people do feel safe and you're calling it out but you're also respecting your own boundaries and mm -hmm. I think what really stands out to me from what you said previously is mm -hmm. that you're not fighting to be seen in this mm -hmm. musical that you're in like you're not fighting to be seen or you're not like trying to be the representation or the only one person and mm -hmm. you can actually do the thing that you were meant to do and really enjoy it which Absolutely. is so special it is like you can just feel the love in the room of rehearsals you know we've got everyone giving each other massages you've got some people um braiding and cornrowing like each other's hair and just ultimately like being really really silly and playful of course like still churning in on our our art focus but it is really really special yeah absolutely have you found anything with the is team the right word the cast <laughs> yeah the <laughs> cast have you been doing anything like fun to bond outside of rehearsals or during rehearsals well not 
Yeah, it's like, if I'm honest, it it is a lot of work doing a a musical, considering we're dancing, we're acting, we're singing. Um, So not quite yet, but we do have a beautiful dinner planned before, a week before the show, which is super excited. Our our director, Gideon, is hosting at his place. So that's super exciting. And, you know, during, actually during rehearsal, once we finish, um, once we finish rehearsal, we do sometimes get on the piano and, you know, sing a little Alicia Keys together. That's definitely been a beautiful bonding moment. I mean, Alicia Keys will bond anybody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've touched on some of this today, but I guess, I, you know, I'm also speaking for myself or like, you know, some of my peers who maybe feel a little, I don't know, like lost in their creative scene or haven't found their community yet or really feel like they're under like the capitalist boot, um, how do you think that we can, you know, find ways to build community safety and creativity in the industries here in Nam? Yeah, great question. Um, I would say don't fear reaching out to people who you see actually already doing the things that you aspire to do. Um, most Black and Pock artists are very happy to help direct you, whether that's, you know, booking your first DJ gig, um, which is something, you know, we at Nightfall and Signal really do try to put emphasis on that we don't gatekeep. It's the opposite of gatekeeping. It's like, it's, there's no shame in it being your first gig or, you know, for example, with Manzala company, it's not like theatre company. It's not just having to already be that in quote, you know, professional, which is, Um, which shouldn't even really be a word within the artist community because sharing your art, you know, there's, there's no judgment whether wherever you're at. So I think, yeah, just feel free to reach out, ask questions, maybe even like write to a venue. And, you know, if you're still not feeling heard, then start your own thing, whether that's a theater company, um, you know, your own like DJ night, don't fear, being rejected because putting yourself out there, you're always going to win. And it might be three no's until it's a yes, but it's that consistency and giving yourself hope and that inner knowing that you will succeed if you keep going. Yeah. I think what I'm hearing is, you know, putting yourself out there, you're not going to fail if you have community around you and you're consistent and you show up with, you know, really good intentions. I think lastly, tell us more about how to show up and support the show and sell it out. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> please do come through. Look, it's at the Wyndham Cultural Centre. Um, you can go onto the Manzala Theatre Company um, website, which is, I'm going to spell it out for you all because I know it's a, it's a black name. <laughs> so, so yeah, go on to M-W-A-N-E. G-A-Z-A, theatrecompany.com. There is tickets there. Um, if not, you can also find it in my tree link uh, at Claddywood on Instagram. And, yeah, or you can go onto the Wyndham Cultural Centre website. It is June 1st, 2nd and 3rd. On the 2nd, we do have a matinee if you're um, not really a night cat. So please do come through and support Black art, black theatre, and, yeah, we really hope to see you there. 100%, and we will link 
your info, Wyndham Cultural Centre, and everything about buying the tickets to the show. But thanks Amazing. so much. Thanks thank so much you. for <laughs> saying thank you at the same time. But yeah. um, I'm so thankful that you were able to like make it on the show, and you really are like truly inspirational um, in so many ways, and that mm. you tr- stay true to yourself, and you're so unbelievably talented. Um, oh, thanks, Inez. Oh, my oh. God, guessing me up, making me blush. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm always happy to do that. Um, but, yes, everybody listening, please go see the show if you can and share it around. Come through. You will not be disappointed. Not at all. Well, thanks so much for joining us here today, Claddy. Thank you so much for having me, Inez. And, yeah, we'll see you at the show. You've just heard an interview with Claddy, who is a jazz singer, DJ, producer, booker, events programmer, and actress. And she joined us earlier this week to chat about her latest role as Tanya in Mungwazi Theatre Company's Bear the Musical and what it feels like to work in a production that truly honours diversity. We also spoke about the Bear cast bonding over Alicia Keys, racism in the music industry, and creating your safer spaces by showing up consistently with community. And you can catch Bear the Musical at Mangwaza Theatre Company at the Wyndham Cultural Centre for a limited show run from June 1st, 2nd and 3rd. And you definitely do not want to miss it. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. And we are, whoop, I just opened something on my phone. Don't worry about it. Uh, It's a beautiful video making fun of someone who's had to draw 20 cards in Uno. Uh, Shout out to social media. Anyway, uh, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we are joined now by queer community organizer Tori to talk about tomorrow's event, Queer Joy is for Everyone, which is being held at Warawe Park in Oakley to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community in the face of anti-queer and anti-trans threats to shut down public expressions of queer life. Tori, thank you so much for joining us this morning. No worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I'm really glad that we got to have this chat. Um, and thanks for making time on short notice, because I think this is, um, you know, this is a really important event that is happening in the sort of in the face of, you know, a rising current of anti-queer and trans um, backlash. It's getting quite a lot of media coverage and there's been also quite a lot of uh 
unfair and unbalanced media coverage that's been happening in this space too. Um, So I thought we could start off with a bit of context for this week's uh, event and talk about the city of Monash's choice to cancel its drag drag queen story time event scheduled for Idahobbit. Now, Monash and other councils, including Casey and Burundara, have recently been at the receiving end of some vile threats in response to planned events celebrating the LGBTQ plus community. So can you tell us a bit about how this backlash, um, you know, came about and fits into a broader current of anti-LGBTQ plus bigotry in Australia? Um, So this current event comes off the back of, I think it's now uh, 43 LGBTQIA plus youth events that have been cancelled across the streets of so-called Victoria. So this is like one of many that have been cancelled over the past uh, month. Um, yeah, this also comes this year. We've also seen the, the neo-Nazi group, the National Socialist Network, occupying the middle of uh, middle ground Parliament steps between Posey Parker and the county rally, county rally against uh, her transphobic event as an opportunity to, to grandstand a violently transphobic and homophobic platform. And amongst all this, uh, drag performers have become massive targets for online harassment. Uh, so kind of this is all conflating in, uh, yeah, a, a momentum of, yeah, anti-queer and anti-trans harassment. And uh, I guess I think about it globally and looking at the bigger picture, we're kind of in a time of rising far right and what I would kind of think of as conspiratorial right politics. And a lot of these trends kind of existed pre-Trump, but were really propelled by his term in office. Um, the legacies of which are really an active world of misinformation and disinformation online and, and a really emboldened network of far right organizations. And I think that's why you can see that a lot of the hate and uh, harassment that queer and trans people are facing online, which is leading to these um, events being cancelled in the public space, a lot of the language that is being used in these attacks is all of, is horrible, but a lot of it is like. Uh, deeply based on myth and fear and, and uh, misguided uh, understandings of what's going on in the world, but it, all of it's um, coalescing in hate. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think you could see in some ways there's people that are just seeking power on the far right and, and using queer and trans uh, identities uh, as a way to do that, and then some people that are really just misguided in their thoughts and beliefs but are now collaborating with fascists. So that's kind of... Yeah. And I mean, it is it's just super concerning um, seeing this kind of convergence and also, you know, seeing this and and not necessarily seeing um, a strong condemnation of of fascists um, as well, because I mean, not from the queer community, but from other groups that are sort of uh, ambiguous to outright, you know, discriminatory against queer and trans people. Um, I just also wanted to mention, Tori, there's a bit of a crackle on your line, so hopefully that'll clear up. But um, I'm going to, um, yeah, turn to to focus on this bit a bit more where, um, you know, it's causing increasing concern among parts of the queer community uh, about the fact that when bigots threaten our events, the advice from Victoria Police, which has been adopted by the city of Monash in this case and recently also by Casey Council for a similar event, is that the event shouldn't go ahead at all. Now, this is especially worrying uh, when we've seen, as you've mentioned, neo-Nazis side with anti-trans campaigners to threaten our community, making Monash's choice feel much more like capitulation than solidarity. So I'm hoping you could unpack the issues with this approach and the message that it sends. Mm, absolutely. 
so for us uh, and and our our networks and communities, we're deeply concerned. Yeah, when local governments side with Victoria Police advice, um, it makes us feel like we're being told to get back in the closet, um, so to speak. Uh, and obviously, we're going to say no to that. <laughs> we don't accept. Um, yeah, I guess the way we look at it, the, the rights and respect that queer and trans people hold in the public sphere today was won, you know, through bitter and fierce struggle, um, particularly being led by queer and trans people of colour who taught us that we have to be strong and act together in the face of bigotry. You know, bigotry that itself has also come for the police historically, we have to acknowledge. So why, after all this time, we would let the police set the narrative for us is kind of bamboozling. Um by Victoria Police's logic, the day has been made safe by acquiescing to the fascist threat, but uh, how on earth is, is that going to make that fascist threat go away? Um, so for this reason, um, we are calling on local governments to listen to the community and not to the police when they're trying to decide what is, you know, quote-unquote safe. Um, so us showing younger generations of queer and trans people that they will be supported and respected and defended by the local government is what we think will make things more safe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it basically feels like, I mean, I'm sure the council wouldn't put it in these terms, but it feels like a reward for bad behaviour where ultimately, um, you know, what these uh, far-right and anti-trans and anti-queer campaigners are calling for is for an end to these events and what has been delivered is an end to the event. Um, But queer community members have organized a a celebratory park party tomorrow in Oakley since the council has chosen to step back. So can you tell us about the event and the environment that you're hoping to create there? Because no doubt organizers have been subject to similar threats that that, um, you know, to those that were targeting the council. But how have you chosen to respond? Yeah, so tomorrow we are really trying to set the narrative ourselves. So, yeah, uh, if the fascists want to see queer and trans people hide in fear and, as you say, being rewarded for, for bad behaviour, then that's exactly what we are not going to give them. Uh, but I think tomorrow we're also hoping to show people the many colours of anti-fascism because coming together and having fun and, and supporting each other to hold space in public is honestly a really important act in these times. Uh, so, yeah, showing young and queer trans people um, that they are loved, um, that they are cherished, and that there are communities of people that will come out and support them is really what we're trying to achieve tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a really sort of um, wonderful expression of queer community and especially, I think, a celebration um, and a validation of queer youth because young queer people are really being used as a political football in so many of these conversations, whether it be about allegations of grooming or, you know, uh, really you know, horrific, um, horrific comments made about young people that are transitioning. Uh, it is, it's something that, you know, th- this kind of rhetoric is designed to make queer people afraid to to be out and proud in public. So, you know, this, this event seems like a really wonderful um, and, you know, positive space to celebrate community. Um, now, I see that the city of Monash has nonetheless made some attempt at celebrating Ida Hobbit yesterday. So what do you make of this, uh, considering their decision to cancel the original event? And I know you've already touched on this, but I think it's it's worth emphasizing. In future, how do you hope other public and private institutions as well that run these kinds of events will hope, uh, sorry, will respond to threats from homophobic and transphobic individuals and groups? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, it was in, in the... In the, the um 
In the timeline of Monash Council particularly, there was a moment of hope about a month ago where they did decide to, to hold the, uh, the drag time story out that then was subsequently cancelled and then obviously I'd have what happened. So it was, we have had moments of almost success out there, which I, I want to acknowledge that they were almost wins, uh, which was cool, uh, whereas other councils have been straight up shut down every time. Uh, and I do really appreciate that if local councillors haven't been paying attention to anti-fascist struggle over the past years, this would, yeah, be a really overwhelming time to suddenly be a proxy site for this pursuit of... Sorry, the- sorry, Tori, the crackle is getting quite loud. Are you on speakerphone at the moment? Oh, I'm just on regular phone. Oh, I can hear you fine now. Keep going. Oh, oh no, sorry about that. Um, must be my phone thinking it's too early. Um yeah, so I, I appreciate that it's a, it's a, um, overwhelming if people haven't been paying to attention to the far, rise of the far right to suddenly be in the middle of this um, struggle for power. Um, but yet, the local governments and other organisations that are wanting to run Pride events, uh, we just say that remember that you are not alone. There are like vast realms of grassroots community groups and anti-fascist networks who will really name yeah this bigotry and violence for what it is what it is and, and show up to defend these spaces. And we, we, we have fun while doing so. And I think a really good example is when the National Socialist Network crashed the Mooney Ponds youth event at the end of last year, the police stood, stood, stood around and did nothing. Um, meanwhile, within an hour, the anti-fascist community had doubled the numbers of the NSN and were having fun while doing it. Mm. And, you know, cre- asserting um, solidarity with, you know, these children who were literally having their face painted and just eating ice cream in the park. Um, so, yeah, in, all over the world, uh, grassroots communities have stood up and defended Drag Time Story Hour and other publicly queer events. And I really think that it's uh, high time that we have our own chance to do so here in uh, so-called Australia. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, it is it is worth emphasising the fact that, um, you know, it's not necessarily, even though my question was kind of looking at how institutions should continue, uh, you know, you know, with these kinds of events in the face of these threats. Um, it really is just grassroots community members that are the ones that are doing the legwork, putting in, um, you know, putting in the time and the care and the love and the resources to actually make sure that queer community and especially queer youth, you know, feel safe and supported and um, feel, you know, comfortable to be visible. So I think um, tomorrow's event looks like it's going to be fantastic. Now, where can people find out more about the Queer Park Party and also support the Glitterific Gay Gathering Fund? Yeah, so uh, Queer Joy is for everyone. It's happening tomorrow in Warrawee Park, which is on Drummond Street in Oakley. Uh, it's between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m., so yeah, please come down. There'll be music, fun, performance, and food. Uh, we yeah, we also have a small trust going uh, to support the, the organising of the event, and I think that you can find all of those things if you just look up Queer Trans Solidarity on social media. You should be able to find those links. Amazing. And we'll have those links in our show notes as well. Uh, Wishing you all the best with tomorrow's event and, um, you know, keep up the good fight. Thanks so much, Tori. Awesome. Thank you.
And that was queer community organizer Tori, who joined us to talk about tomorrow's event, Queer Joy is for Everyone, which is being held at Warwick Park in Oakley between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community in the face of anti-queer and anti-trans threats to shut down public expressions of queer life. And this is being held in the wake of several anti-trans threats, uh, sorry, in the wake of several councils, most recently the city of Monash, deciding to cancel their drag queen storytime event because of threats of violence from conservative campaigners and far-right groups. And as I mentioned before, we'll have all the information in our show notes. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.45 in the morning and we are joined by Dr. Jordana Silverstein, historian and senior research fellow at Peter McMullen Center on Statelessness at the Melbourne Law School, to speak with us about her new book, Cruel Care, which is an eye-opening exploration of the construction and violent governance of child refugees in Australian law and policy. Cruel Care asks provocative questions about how policymakers are shaped by and in turn shape their histories, communities and the nation. And it draws our attention to the importance of situating these concerns within ongoing settler colonialism in so-called Australia. It is a clarion call for better treatment of all who seek asylum on this continent. Now, just before we jump into this interview, uh, I want to let listeners know that we may be touching on some distressing content, even though we don't go into much detail but you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. You can access mob-only support on 13YARN. And you can call the Kids Helpline on 1-800-551-800. That's 1-800-551-800. Jordi, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me, Priya. Yeah, of course. I mean, I've been looking forward to this book coming out for a while. Um, as you know, I um, I bagged this interview, uh, I would like to say, about a month ago. 
Um, but yeah, I thought we could maybe start off with you introducing yourself in more detail because something that I really appreciated in Cruel Care is the way that you have weaved your own positionality through the book in order to situate yourself in relation to the narrative. So how did you come to this work? Yeah, um, good question. So in a few different ways. I'm a historian, um, so my PhD, um, history, which I did um, yeah, a bit over a decade ago now, um, looked at Holocaust education in Jewish schools. So my grandparents, my mum's parents, were Holocaust survivors who came to Australia as refugees um, after the war. Um, and uh, with my uncle uh, as well, who was born in a displaced persons camp after the war. So I come from that family history on that side of my family, and my um, other side are different uh, uh, British Jews, migrants as well. Um, so I come with that, I guess, migration past, that past of refugeeness um, and of uh, the Holocaust and the traumas of that, but also of the survival of that um, mm. and the getting through and the rebuilding of lives that comes in survivor communities, um, but also, of course, the loss. So those two things intertwined. Um, and then I was doing other kinds of work. Um, and then actually, uh, you know, it's the way these things happen in academia, a job appears. Um, so Professor Joy DeMusi, who uh, worked at Melbourne Uni, um, had got a massive Australian Research Council grant, a laureate fellowship, and it funded her and some postdocs and some PhD students to all study um, uh, histories of child refugees and Australian internationalism from 1920 to the present. So we each took different parts of that and the part that I took or was given um, was to look at the history of Australian child refugee policy. Um, so that's kind of both why I was sort of situated to take on this project but also yeah the project was sort of I guess given to me and then I ran with it mm. um, and you know it also comes my interest in this you know uh, comes as well from the fact that I was involved in student politics at uni, I was women's officer uh, back in 2005 um, and I was interested in how both the activism of that is done, but also the politics of it. Um, and, of course, you know, within student politics with people who have then gone in to be in state and federal politics and media, um, as you are at Melbourne Uni, <laughs> mm-hmm. that weird place. So I guess I'm also kind of interested in how politics is done um, and how it's done by people and yeah. thinking about those people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is um, a really interesting sort of exploration in the book of how, as well, the sort of personalities of policymakers are attended to, but then you sort of look as well at the the personalization of um, of these politics and the politics of emotion that come into the construction of child refugee policy, which really brings together both uh, something that might be quite an abstract notion for policymakers, even if they do have occasions of face-to-face interaction with child refugees, um, with their own sort of emotional and moral positioning. Um, yes. So 
you you did touch on uh, how you started coming into this work through this ARC project and through your own interest in it. But I was hoping we could also get some insight into the research process for the book, because there's so much meticulous archival work that you've done, as well as very important, uh, though I'm sure quite morally challenging interviews that you've done with public officials involved in creating and implementing policies affecting refugee children. So can you take us through some of how Cruel Care came to be and the work that went into it? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, it's, I guess, a lot of research and you kind of forget how much research you've done. And um, But I've been working on it for a long time, so I started the postdoc um, the end of 2014. Um, and so it was a five-year postdoc, a lot of research, a lot of writing. Um, and, yeah, so it was both oral histories and archival. So I went to archives um, at the National Archives of Australia, um, the National Library. I looked at political party archives. Um uh, so the National Archives, I was looking at sort of government bureaucracy archives, that the administration of some of these uh, programs. So um, you can sort of see, and I take in, in one chapter, I take people through um, the administration of um, the guardianship of unaccompanied, um, also called unaccompanied uh, child refugees, and sort of documentation of social workers as they're talking about these children. This sits in the archives. Um, there's all sorts of incredible... Um, things in there and and I talk about you know the, the fact that some of it really shouldn't be accessible for public view there's a lot of medical records that if these were citizen children these would not be mm. accessible um, so that's sort of and so yeah so thinking about how to use these records um, that tell really important stories um, but how to use them ethically and those I talk about that within the book um, and then yeah there was the oral history component um, so I identified some policymakers. Um, that I wanted to speak to. So it's uh, public servants, ministers, former former ministers, um, politicians, uh, but then people within the human rights sort of NGO networks or um, UN, UNICEF, um, uh, spoke with uh, the Victorian um, Child Children's Commissioner. Mm. Um, So really trying to speak to, I guess, all kinds of different levels of... Uh, policymakers and you know political advisors, people within the political parties. Um, yeah, so it was really you know you use this, what's called the snowball method. So you talk to someone, and then you say, "Who else do you think I should talk to?" And then they give you some names, and you go and talk to them. And that's how you find all the kind of random people um, who are doing this work of making this policy that, from the public view, you've never heard of. Yeah, um, and that's what became really important to me is to kind of see, like, who's actually doing this work, mm-hmm. uh, what's happening behind the scenes that we're just simply unaware of. Um, and they, you can do these kinds of things as a historian. But I think journalists obviously don't have, you know, five years to spend on a project, mm-hmm. don't have the resources to do this kind of level of interviewing um, for the most part. So, yeah, I think there's, there's kind of a good um, approach that a historian can bring mm-hmm. to these kinds of interviews and yeah some were hard some were you know with incredibly politically powerful people um who said things um that uh i had feelings one way or another about Mm -hmm. um some of which i talk a bit about in the book but you know the job of the oral historian is not to judge and it's like and i take that seriously and you know my task there is to help people tell their story so that others can learn from it Mm. um and that's what I'm there to do, and I don't do that to be duplicitous or anything, but simply because I want to hear and try to understand 
these people and not to understand them in a um, uh, let's feel sorry for them way, mm -hmm. but let's understand um, where they're coming from. Um, yeah. I think there's something useful in that. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I I think this this is a really valuable um, aspect of the book is not to say, oh, you know, because we're attending to the emotional politics at play when people are making these decisions about policy making. That's not to say, oh, you know, um, it's it's so uh, it's so tough for policymakers that we neglect the material conditions that um, you know refugees have to suffer on on our borders and in detention. Um, but it is to really look at the role that emotion does have in in yeah. policymaking. Um, and so I think um, a really unique in terms of public discourse about people seeking asylum in so-called Australia, and in my view, an absolutely vital part of the book is the way that you constantly keep settler colonialism in view when you're discussing the governance of child refugees. So can you take us uh, through why you chose to take this approach and what it reveals about this country uh, to have these processes happening in parallel and informed by one another? Yeah. I mean, I took the, the approach nearly because it's a historical truth, but it does make sense to me to talk about the um, management of borders without thinking about why those borders are being managed. They're being managed as part of the settler colonial project. Um, you dispossess Aboriginal people of their land um, by stealing the land, but also putting other people on that land and choosing who will be the people on that land. So Howard, John Howard, former Prime Minister, very famously said, we all decide to come to this country in the circumstances in which they come. And, you know, there's outroar when he says it and everyone's very upset, but really he's just stating the truth that we absolutely know it. And there's, I guess there was that he said it so bluntly, but this is exactly how immigration policy functions. Um, so I think there was no question for me that I had to bring these things together um, that because it's simply, I think, the truth of, of why... Um, there are controls and why the controls over migration are racialized. Um, but then once you, you know, if you're thinking about child refugees, you see these patterns and you see the continuation of policy movements. You also see the same people doing the policy. So a lot of people move between working on Aboriginal policy and immigration policy. Um, and so that's a really important um, point. Um, and at certain points, the minister, so Van Stone, for instance, was, Minister for both Aboriginal Affairs and Immigration. Um, and I remember at the time when it happened, you know, commenting on it with people that, you know, she'd kind of become the Minister for Racial Others, mm. um, that they were really lumping these two groups together. So I think we have to see it as part of the same process. But I think, yeah, in terms of the actual policies, you know, we see, I sort of show how ideas about child removal of the stealing children, of Aboriginal children, the stolen generation, the idea that Aboriginal people are bad parents and are harming their children then gets sort of moved onto refugee families as well. So moved onto with children overboard, for instance, um, we see that the people we will hopefully remember or we'll be able to look up what children overboard um, was, but basically, you know, this lie is spread that refugee um, refugees were throwing their children into the water from a sinking boat or before the boat was sinking. Um, and this lie spreads around as part of a, the election campaign. Um, 
And the government, Howard, again, says, you know, we don't want parents like this coming to this country. Um, this is not appropriate parenting. So we get this idea again that refugee parents are not good parents and we need to save the children mm. from them. So we see these recurring highly racialized ideas of who is a parent and what do these children need. And what these children are imagined to need is white parents. Yeah. And I mean, I think this really underpins the notion of cruel care that you're exploring across the book. And it's particularly confronting, I found, in the case of positions that have been taken by various immigration ministers across the two major parties, because as you identify in the book, the minister of the day is effectively legislatively constructed as the guardian of child refugees, which creates this perverse kinship dynamic. And I was wondering if you could speak to how you've seen the emotions of authority figures leveraged in refugee policy and how this obscures the actual material violence is occurring at our borders. Yeah, and I think this is such a... You know, this is kind of the key point of the book, I think, or one of the key points is, um, as I was saying before, you know, I didn't want to... My point in, in understanding the emotions and the people who are doing this policy isn't to empathise with them because they're doing enough for empathising themselves. They're thoroughly wrapped up in their own struggle um, within these positions and they talk a lot about how hard it is to be the minister. Um, they talk a lot about their struggles, about how hard it is to make a decision, about the responsibility. They're thoroughly wrapped up in their own um, emotional value. And what that really does is it keeps the concern with policymakers, keeps the story with policymakers and completely obscures um, the refugees. It means that we, you know, we um, have these occasional, you know, one or two refugees. We know their names in, in the media, um, this public campaign. Um, but it's very individualised. Um, and we don't know the names and the stories of the many, many people who are being turned back on boats. You know, still, that's the process um, today. That's still what's happening today. And we never get to know who they are. Um, we being, I guess, the Australian public, the people on the boats, obviously, they're, they're full humans who know exactly who they are and they know exactly what their stories are. Um, but we don't, don't get to hear them. And we're told, and we're told, I guess, by media focus, um, by, yeah, so, so many different things, um, that the story is about the policymakers. So I guess what I was trying to do with the book was sort of focus on the policymakers, but as a way of saying, like, they shouldn't be the focus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope I've done that successfully. But yeah. that's really what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say is we actually need to know, we need to move them to the side. They're mm-hmm. not the story that we need to be thinking about when we're thinking about refugees. Um, and child refugees Um, because, yeah, they're really focused on their own suffering, their own trouble, their own traumas of watching, for instance, the boat crash um, Mm -hmm. at Christmas Island and people will remember that horrific footage. If you haven't seen it, I again encourage you to to look it up. It's quite easily available um, online and in interviews with members of the ALP, it was very clear they still really take this on and they're really convinced that they need to stop the boat to stop things like this happening. So... They're really, you know, there's a foreclosing of the political imagination of what mm. they could do to stop the boats. Um, or what, you know, let's get rid of that phrase, of course, stop the boats. But, um, yeah, they're really focused on, um, the, yeah, on, on that, on themselves. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think your book has done a fantastic job of identifying how, you know, how these discourses of emotion that, turn inwards towards the policymakers and towards the immigration ministers 
come to be and how they continue to repetitively circulate in media to then draw our attention away from, you know, what we should be paying attention to. Um, and I think that, you know, this focus on on emotion has been really effective in that regard to say, hang on, why do we think about refugee policy and child refugee policy in particular in these terms? It's because this notion of emotional investment and um, and the, the, you know, expressions of... Uh, "Quote unquote care uh, that come from these policymakers uh, is what's put to the fore um, in the justification of these ultimately horrific and dehumanizing policies." Uh, now, drawing on philosopher Joanne Faulkner, you write that children are understood in the public imaginary as "quote a screen onto which fantasies of the future can be projected." End quote. However, you also note that the development of child refugee policy involves a rhetorical strategy that deliberately narrows Australia's political imagination and the visioning of alternative futures regarding children seeking asylum. So could you speak to the importance of expanding our political imaginations here in line with both the desires of refugees and with First Nations sovereignty? Yeah, I think what I try to do in the book is not to say this is the policy change that we need to make. I think quite often the temptation for people is to say, um, we just need to, to change the numbers. Um, let's, let's let in more people or um, let's, you know, uh, end this thing or do this thing. Um, obviously, I start from the premise that on stolen land, no human is illegal, right? That the fundamentally we have no authority um, on this land um, to determine who comes in here. That is up to Aboriginal people. Um, and I take that very seriously. And that's, you know, the acknowledgement of country that we do as non-Aboriginal people. When we say um, we're on someone's land, uh, and I'm on Kulin land, as I speak to you today, um, so if we take that seriously, that means we don't have authority to make law on this land. Um, and I want to take that seriously. But I think what that opens up is the possibility of learning from Aboriginal people, of being guided from Aboriginal people about what does community look like? What does care look like? Um, of yeah, of, of thinking these things through. I also, I also, I guess, come to this um, with as, as a Jew, as someone who thinks um, in particular Jewish ways about, um, and, and I'll just say anti-Zionist Jewish ways um, about how we make community, how we care for each other across difference, um, and because I live. Uh, differently, I guess, to white Anglo-Australia in my life um, and the way I organise my world um, in many ways. Um, I think I have some different ideas, I guess. So I guess what I want people to do or what I'm hoping this book prompts people to think about is, yeah, to think, to, to be less certain about what needs to happen, um, to... Mm lose the confidence that they might have for themselves that they have the authority to determine what someone else could do. And I think, to me, like, in doing the interviews, one of the really powerful things that I knew already but just kept coming back to me again and again was how utterly violent it is for someone to say to somebody else, you don't get to come here, you have to go sit in and rot in this jail and we're going to torture you. Um, because we think that you shouldn't come here. Um, it's so... Um, like, it's, it's kind of beyond words to me, mm. the, the arrogance of that move, um, and that it's kind of astounding that it's become normalised. 
and it's become normalized, of course, over centuries. This isn't a new concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this, this idea of, like, ultimate state sovereignty is so deeply unethical and deeply violent mm-hmm. um, that I don't know how we can not try to think in other ways. Um, so I think we do need to be guided by um, Aboriginal people, uh, First Nations people, um, as well as by refugees and who I think have learned from what has happened, who can tell us about what it, what that experience is of being at the, uh, at the sort of coalface of the border in ways that those of us who haven't been don't, may not know about or... You know, it's, it's not about mining people's stories, their painful stories, um, but about deeply learning about other ways of moving about the world and being in the world, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's also just so important to, to emphasise um, the fact that, you know, people have been um, calling for change and making recommendations, First Nations people and refugees um, that have come to this country that are in detention or have been in the d- detention. Um, and there's so much, you know, and you cite this throughout the book, there's ample evidence of um, the ways that people are imagining otherwise ab- about how these policies could be. Um, but look, I think maybe we'll go to a song and um, and come back to pick up the conversation. Now, I asked you about um, what you'd like played. Jordi, do you want to introduce the song? Um, sure. So I had to think about it. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be listening to Archie Rich's Took the Children Away. The late Archie Rich. This story's right, this story's true I would not tell lies to you Like the promises they did not keep And how they fenced us in like sheep Said to us, come take our hand Set us up on mission land Told us to read, to write and pray then they took the children away, took the children away, the children away. Snatched from their mother's breast, said this is for the best, took them away. Welcome and the Holy name, said you've got to understand. We'll give to them what you can't give. Teach them how to really live. Teach them how to live, they said. Humiliated them instead. Taught them that and taught them this. And others taught them prejudice. You took the children away. The children away Breaking their mother's heart Carrying us all about Took them away One dark day on Framling Hill Came and didn't give a damn My mother cried Go get their dead He came running Fighting 
back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and that was the late Archie Roach with Took the Children Away and with Jordy speaking before about grounding ourselves where we are um, we're coming to you from Kulin Nations land in Fitzroy and um, just want to remember and acknowledge and sit with the fact that this was a really important place for Archie Roach and uh, you know there are people at the station that have very fond memories of him coming in and recording some of his early tracks here so, Jordy, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Reminding listeners, we are speaking with Dr. Jordana Silverstein, who's a historian and senior research fellow at Peter McMullen Center on Statelessness at the Melbourne Law School, discussing her new book, Cruel Care. So, 
Building on what we discussed so far, I was hoping that you could speak to the importance of political engagement and advocacy as an academic working in this field, because so much of the book speaks about people in positions of power being moved by child refugees, but then ultimately doing nothing or making things worse. So what obligations did this work draw you into or move you to further engage with? Yeah, it's a good question. I think so one of the, take a step back, one of the um, moments that really got me thinking about um, how does it all work and but how does the policy work and what is effective in terms of making change is, you know, I think about this a lot because um, I think as activists, um, and I do, I guess, I like to think, you know, a fair bit of um, community work and activist work and, and I try to show up um, where asked to um, and we're required um, but um, a moment that I talk about in the book is um, Tony Burke who was former Minister uh, of Immigration who was the Minister at the um, end of the last ALP government um, and he at ALP National Conference um, in, in 20, I want to say 2015 and I apologise I got that date wrong um, he stands up as part of the debate over whether it should become ALP policy to um, bring about boat turnbacks. Um, that's a, that's to make that policy. Um, it's already a Liberal Party policy, and the ALP is talking about it. Um, and of course, it went through. Um, and Tony Burke draws on his experience as immigration minister, and he gets quite teary. And he talks about um, a child who drowned on a boat, and who he got um, the name on a sticky note, and um, that really stayed with him. And and because of that child and because of others, that this is why we need boat turnbacks. Um, this is to stop this happening. So, it, you know, I think so often um, in activist communities, we talk about the power of the story, about the power of, you know, hearing an example of what happened, um, of sharing our stories. You know, I think in many ways, like he did exactly what so many activists would say is effective campaigning. Um, but what it led him to was boat turnbacks, this, um, which is considered by many to be um, illegal under international law um, and is obviously incredibly violent um, and awful. So it's really got me thinking about what is effective um, and why do we keep thinking that that kind of strategy of sharing those stories will be effective without thinking about the politics of what the response to those stories will be. Um, so I guess it's gotten me, and this is really part of, I want this book to be helpful to activists, um, and it's gone me thinking about, in, in my work, when is sharing my story effective, but then where, when is it either drowning out somebody else's story? Um, and I'm very cognizant of that as a Jewish person who tries to do Palestine solidarity work, um, of when it is effective and useful to talk about myself and when it is much more important, that's most of the time, to be quiet um, and listen. Um, so I think what what this research in this book has kind of led me to is a position of seeing the importance of more listening um, as a white person, a coloniser, um, that I have of humility, I guess, that if we're going to say that these policies, part of the problem of this policy making is that people focus on themselves, I think an important response to that is humility and of saying, I need to learn more, and there are people with wisdom and all kinds of people who I can learn from. Um, and so I think it's pushed me further in that direction um, to shutting up a lot more, as I, as I speak on the radio. Um, <laughs> but, 
yeah, I think it's it's yeah, I, I to listen to people and to listen to people in ethical ways, not to consume their stories, not to drain them of their energy, um, not to ask questions. You know, I think a lot of the time as activists we're told, you know, ask lots of questions or whatever. And oftentimes it's not about asking, it's about being quiet and listening to what's already being said um, and not taking up people's time and space um, and draining them of their energy and mining them for content, mm. but genuinely um, engaging and listening and hearing and thinking about, in par- thinking in partnership with people, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I promised myself that I wouldn't... Um, come in with some academic theory and try and keep this as accessible as possible. But this really does make me think of uh, Unangak's uh, scholar uh, Eve Tuck's writing on theories of change. And, you know, what are the theories of change that underpin the way that we engage in activist work, the way that, you know, people engage in policymaking, you know, what are these stories, whether it is uh, centering uh, centering the emotions of politicians or whether it is mining the trauma of refugees, uh, what work are they meant to do in, and, and what change are we trying to affect if we rely on particular kinds of narratives? Um, so you noted just then and also regularly during the book that the stories of child refugees are not yours to tell. And I think it's such an important point to make about narrative and agency related to child refugees overall, because both the status of refugee and the status of child as they're constructed in public discourse are, you know, categorically voiceless. Um or produced as voiceless. So mm. with this in mind, are there any pieces of writing or testimonies um, other than those cited in the book by current or former child refugees that you'd point listeners to? Yeah, I think um, there's a few things. I think, so firstly, um, because I was part of a research project, the three PhD students who completed their PhDs, um, which worked uh, to tell stories of different groups of child refugees, so I'd encourage people to look up their work, Nero Kandasami, um, Sarah Green and uh, Nguyen, um, their PhDs and their writing articles and books, and, and I'd encourage people to look that up. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that I look at, uh, that I look through in the book and that I quote from a little bit is um, the writings of child refugees as they submitted them to Human Rights Commission inquiries into um, detention. And that's available online. And, you know, I'd encourage people, you know, spend some time with these documents that these children have written deliberately to be heard. They're contributing to an inquiry um, and they're now available for any of us to look at online and there's artwork and there's poetry and there's all kinds of documentation um, of the children um, in their own words and with their own handwriting. Um, So spend time with those. I think as well, um, I mean, obviously the media could do a better job of reporting on these stories and they don't do it very often. Um, So there's not that much to point to in the media, but... um, I think, I imagine there's people listening or who will listen to 3CR, you know, child refugees and and formerly people who were once child refugees are everywhere in our community. Um, They might, yeah, they might be listening now or or they'll, you know, they're out in the world. And I think um, not imagining that they're some, this other group, Mm -hmm. um, 
many people know child refugees, and I'm not saying to go and ask people to tell their stories, but just being attentive and creating space. And, you know, early on in my research, I was getting my car towed and um, it had broken down and, and I was in the in the sort of truck with the guy who was, we were driving my car to the, the servo and um, I complimented him on his driving and he asked me what I do for my work and, and Jeanette, he'd been on the Tampa and he was a child refugee and we talked a little bit about that. Um, I think not imagining that that child refugee, former child refugees, yeah, they're, they're everywhere and they're, they're also regular humans. Um, yeah who contribute to politics and culture in so many different ways. And they might not be talking directly about their experience as a uh, refugee, but it will inform what they say in the world and how they are in the world. Yeah, I think that is such an important reminder is that we're already in community with people um, all the time that are that have experienced, you know, this horrific violence at Australia's borders um, and, you know, some that may be continuing to experience this violence through, you know, community detention models. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, being attentive to, to what people are saying and uh, understanding that, you know, we have a responsibility. Um, those of us who have citizenship status in particular have a responsibility um, to really engage and not to turn away from these stories. This is being done uh, ostensibly in our name. Mm-hmm. Um, so, look, uh, Jordi, I've really appreciated you making the time to join us today. Um, wh- for my final question, I just wanted to ask, um, what, where can our listeners pick up a copy of Cruel Care and what do you hope that people take away from this book? Yeah, so you can get a copy at all good bookshops. Uh, if it's not in your favourite bookshop, then ask them to get a copy in. Uh, it's also online. It's published by Monash University Publishing. You can get it through their website as well. Um, don't use Amazon. They're evil. Um, yeah, but it's, it should just be available in bookshops um, wherever, you, wherever you go. Um, what do I want? I want people to be more... Um, aware of, of what happens. I want people to think differently. I guess overall, like, I'm not such a... There's a lot of facts and information in the book and I'm not really such a facts and information person. This was a bit of a, you know, a stretch and a new, new approach for me. Um, so it's not that I want people to understand that this happened and then this happened and this happened. But I think what I want people to ultimately feel empowered to do is to think differently Um and to dream in new ways and to find community in new ways, to think about what are the stories that are told and the stories that we could tell, um, to feel, to enjoy difference. Um, yeah, I hope... Um, I've had... It's been lovely and I've had people say they felt seen by the book and, and that's, you know, so beautiful and... and yeah, I guess I think it's just so clear that um, we've utterly, as a country, utterly failed refugees um, and we need to not do that. And ultimately, I guess this, this writing is written in the hope of furthering um, in some small way the project of ending the settler colonial state. 
um, ultimately. Mm. And I think um, even though that's quite a big goal, obviously, um, and you know, I think we need to keep chipping away at it. And I think if people can feel like every little bit counts, um, every little word spoken or written or action taken, um, you know, I'm not saying like progress narrative or anything mm-hmm. like that, but just it's helpful. It's helpful to remind ourselves that this is that Australia was created and one day it will end. Um, and it will end by a lot of us doing the work of bringing about that end. Absolutely. Look, Jordi, thank you so much again for making the time to speak with us this morning. I really appreciate you um, having a chat with us about Cool Care and just want to congratulate you again on this phenomenal work. Thank you so much. It's, yeah, it's been great to talk about it. Thank you for your wonderful questions. I love 3CR. <laughs> Have a great day. Thanks, you too. And that was Dr. Jordana Silverstein, historian and senior research fellow at Peter McMullen Center on Statelessness at the Melbourne Law School, who spoke with us about her new book, Cruel Care, an eye-opening exploration of the construction and violent governance of child refugees in Australian law and policy. Now, for listeners who might have found uh, some of that content distressing, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. For mob-only support, you can call 13YARN. That's 139276, 139276. And you can also call the Kids Helpline on 1-800-551-800. That's 1-800-551-800. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And we're just going to have a little overview on what we covered today. Uh, I We spoke about... Uh, Claddie, who is a creative and um, actress in the creative scene here in Nam, about Bear the musical and about racism in the music industry, as well as creating safer spaces. And then afterwards, we spoke with Tori, who's a queer community organizer, about tomorrow's Queer Joy is for Everyone event, which will be celebrating the LGBTQ plus community at Warawi Park in Oakley from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And finally, as you just heard, we were joined by Dr. Jordana Silverstein, who spoke with us about her new book, Cruel Care. That's all we've got time for this week on Thursday Morning Breakfast. We'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.